We're talking this afternoon about uh, verses 161 to 168 and verses 169 to 176 of Psalm 119. In the first of those two stanzas, the main idea is rejoicing in the Word of God. You find that uh, stated actually in different ways about four times in these verses. In verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. In 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. In verse 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. And in verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. So you get that, that's the main idea, rejoicing in your word. Now there are some additional thoughts in the stanza that relate to those that main thought. First of all, of course, this is in spite of, he rejoices in God's word, in spite of princes who persecute him. That's in verse 161. He rejoices in the word because of its benefits, its blessings to him. That's in verses, verse 165, especially great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. And then he concludes by saying, because of this rejoicing in your law and because of the benefits your law gives to me, I will always keep your law. Verse 166, especially. I, Lord, I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. Also, 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. So we're going to look at um, the verses in order pretty much here, uh, beginning with the persecution of princes, and he rejoices in the word of God in spite of the persecution of princes. There are two things we want to notice about that first statement. First of all, he talks about his enemies again here as as princes. He's done that before in the psalm. He's not always identified them so precisely. Sometimes he's spoken more generally. But here and in one or two other places in the psalm, he identifies his enemies particularly as princes. And he has in mind the fact that these people then are people who have more power and more ability, therefore, to injure him than ordinary persons do. They can uh, use their power and authority against him. They can gather other men who are under their authority to help them in their persecution. They can abuse their power uh, in judgment, for example, to uh, attack him. There are many uh, avenues open to those who have authority for persecution and abuse of power than for the ordinary person. And that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. These are princes, people uh, in positions of leadership And he also says that they are persecuting him without cause. That doesn't mean that they would not be able to give a reason for what they do. They would probably be able to explain quite clearly why why they're attacking him. But what he means, of course, is that they don't have a righteous cause against him. Their attacks on him are fundamentally because of their hatred of righteousness and their love of wickedness. 
They therefore attack him like Abel, uh, Cain attacked Abel because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. We have good examples of this persecution of princes in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, as he, especially at the end of his life, stood first before the leaders of the Jews, the princes, if you will, of the Jews, and later um, uh, before Pontius Pilate and Herod, who all persecuted him without cause, who all hated what he represented, hated his words, his righteous words, hated his claims about himself, and used their power and authority to persecute him without cause. You have another example in the Apostle Paul, who was persecuted by the leaders of the Jews, and who was also persecuted at various times and in various places by Roman authorities, representatives of the Roman government, again without cause sometimes, in fact, without even having any kind of accusation proved against him or attempted to be proved. So he's suffering, then, at the hands of uh, powerful men. But, he says, my heart stands in awe of your word. The word, the phrase, stands in awe, is a little bit, I think, of a soft translation of the Hebrew word here. The word really means dread. It's a word found, for example, in Job 23, verses 15 and 16, where Job says, Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him, for God made my heart weak And the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. So, what he really says here is, my heart dreads your word. And he's talking about the commandments, and he's talking about the fact that these commandments of God uh, proclaim judgment against all those who are sinful, and that those judgments of God are very severe. We all, uh, if we consider carefully the uh, meaning of God's law, the the threats of that law against us as sinners, we certainly would dread that word of God. My heart stands, my heart dreads your word, fears your word, as, for example, a, a child may fear the anger of his father, so we fear or dread the anger of God. We dread his displeasure, and we dread his anger, and we dread his judgment upon us. And in comparison, then, with this dread of God, the fear of men is nothing. Princes persecute me without a cause, he says, but I'm not going to be terrified by them. The fear of God is much greater in me than the fear of men. And I think, too, that verse 168 is connected uh, with this as well. It really um, expresses the same idea, though in very different language. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. 
When he says all my ways are before you, he means that he always lives and walks in the presence of God. God sees everything he does. God sees not only his external behavior, as men would see it, but God sees into his heart. He sees his desires. He sees his thoughts. All his ways are before him. He's thinking very much along the lines of David in Psalm 139. The early part of that psalm, David shows his terror of God. He says of God, you search me, you understand my thought far off, you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? David is terrified, and he wants to flee from the presence of God. He's terrified of God's righteous judgments. That's the kind of fear he's talking about here when he says, For all my ways are before you. And it's partly then because of this fear, not only, and we'll see that in a moment, but partly because of this fear of God's anger, fear of God's word, that he says at the beginning of 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. All my ways are before you. I know that you are looking on and seeing me. Therefore, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. That's the kind of sense of the presence of God that we need daily. That we, all our ways are always before him. So if you take just those two verses, you would say this is a stanza that's really dominated by the idea of fear. This Fear seems to be the um, main idea in those verses. And yet when you look at the rest of the stanza, verses 162 to 167, it's all about rejoicing. It's all about joy. So he combines the two here. On the one hand, there's this terror of God's word, and on the other hand, there is rejoicing at it. My heart, he says, dreads your word, and he goes right on in 162 to say, I rejoice at your word. I dread it and I rejoice at it. As one who finds great treasure, and that's really the main idea. That's what comes out throughout the rest of the verses here. Um, This idea of rejoicing in the word of God. Now, in uh, 162, then, he says, that I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. The word treasure there is a word that really means plunder or spoil. And the idea we should get is that he is comparing himself to a man who has fought against his enemy, who has defeated his enemy, who has at least driven him from the battlefield, is now safe from any further attacks from his enemy and is free to gather up the plunder, the spoil that has been left behind. And he's rejoicing, of course, in the fact that he can enrich himself, greatly enrich himself, at the expense of his enemies. And what the psalmist is saying here is, I rejoice at your word like one who rejoices at finding great plunder or great spoil. 
There's an example of this rejoicing in uh, great spoil in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 25. That kind of illustrates the point, I think. In 2 Chronicles 20 is the record of the battle of Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah with Ammon, Moab, and the Edomites. And you remember in that battle, Jehoshaphat and his army didn't even have to fight. God um, stirred up enmity between Moab and Ammon and Edom, and they slaughtered each other, basically. And then all that was left for Jehoshaphat and his people to do was come and take away the spoil. Second Chronicles 20, verse 25, When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, here's their rejoicing, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, or the valley of blessing, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka unto this day. This is the psalmist then rejoicing in the word of God, valuing it more than great treasure or great plunder. He's like the man uh, in the parable of Jesus who found a pearl of great price in a field and went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the field and take possession of that pearl for himself. That pearl was, of course, the kingdom of heaven. And David's really, or the psalmist here, is really talking in the same kind of strain here. He rejoices at the word of God as one who finds great treasure. His joy is in the word. So you get joy and terror combined. They're not considered to be incompatible emotions here. This joy continues in verse 163. And here he gives us two sides of the same coin. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. First, I hate and abhor lying. He puts it very strongly. That second word he uses there could also be translated as abominate. It's the same word from which we get the same Hebrew word which we often translate as abomination. I hate and abominate lying, but I love your law. These two go together, of course. The greater his love for the law of God, the greater his hatred for falsehood and lying. The uh, hatred and abhorrence of falsehood is fed and created by his love for the law of God. The two are inextricably intertwined. If we love the law, we hate and abhor lying. The reverse is also true. So he's saying, I love your law, and exactly because I love your law, I hate and abhor lying. In verse 164, He looks at the righteous judgments of God. Not just at the law, but at the righteousness of the law. And notice that he's rejoicing in the righteousness of the law. Here, it's that particular characteristic of the law that attracts him. 
And he says of that righteousness of the law, seven times a day I praise you for that righteousness of your law. He praises God every day, and he praises God seven times a day. That is frequently, in the course of a day, he praises God for the righteousness of his law. And then in verse 167 as well, My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. He repeats his avowal of love for the law. He had said it in verse 163, I love your law. Here he says it again, I love them, and he adds that adverb exceedingly. He loves them more than anything else, more than all earthly treasures. And therefore, his soul keeps them. Now the question, of course, is why should he have such rejoicing, such joy in the law? I don't We probably aren't used to thinking this way. Probably aren't used to thinking about rejoicing in God's law. We think of it as the means by which our sin is exposed. And it's not a very pleasant thing, a pleasant experience for us. And yet, this is what David learned in Psalm 139, isn't it? He begins that psalm in a state of terror desiring to flee from the presence of God, but he ends very differently. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. and See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He wants God to search him, and of course the searching is by the piercing word of God, as Hebrews 4 talks about. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword which pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That's what he's asking for. He's asking for that piercing of the word of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Why? So that you can see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Take me from that way of wickedness and bring me into the everlasting way. That's what the psalmist has in mind here too in Psalm 139. But he expresses it very differently. He says in verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. I think there's two things there. As God pierces us with the sword of his word and exposes our sins and our wicked thoughts, he does that so that he may bring us to repentance, so that he may cleanse us, purge us of those sins and bring us into the way everlasting. And it's only in that everlasting way that we have peace with God. The law itself does not confer peace, of course. But the law is the instrument which God uses to expose our sins, to expose our incompatibility with his righteousness. And then he shows us his righteousness as revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us peace. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, the very beginning verse of that chapter Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we love the law, and in walking in the way of the law of God, we have peace with God, great peace, peace that passes understanding, peace that fills our hearts and minds, peace that is the uh, answer to all the disturbances of this life, the disturbances caused by princes, the disturbances caused by our own sins and weaknesses, the disturbances and disruptions that are part of every man's life here in this world. That's the first benefit. Peace comes to those who love the law because walking in the law is the way of peace, the everlasting way. And the second benefit is nothing causes them to stumble. That's a separate idea, I think. What he means is, of course, that out of our love for, for, for the law of God and our rejoicing in the law of God arises the strength to resist every temptation. We are passionately devoted to God and to his law. We rejoice in that law. We want to keep that law. We are strongly motivated to seek that law and obedience to that law. And because of our love for the law and our rejoicing in that law, we're able to overcome. Able to overcome princes who persecute us without a cause. Able to overcome trials and temptations. Able even to resist and to overcome the desires of our flesh and the weaknesses that are ours. Nothing can cause us to stumble when we are loving the law of God as we ought to love it. So he says also in verse 166, Lord, I hope for your salvation, and because I hope for your salvation, I do your commandments. His hope is the the certain hope of the believer, that hope which embraces the promises and is an anchor of the soul, And it's then in the certainty of that hope that he says, I will keep the commandments of my God. I will serve him all the days of my life. Again, this is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he fought with the devil and with all temptation during his earthly ministry, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. I come to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I love your law. I rejoice in your law as in great treasure. He loved it so much that he resisted even a temptation even unto death. And in him is the possibility for us also to love that law and to walk in its ways. So that's uh, the first of the two stanzas we're looking at. We come now to verses 169 to 176, the last stanza of the psalm. And I think 
when you look at this stanza, one, one thing that ought to uh, strike you is that this stanza is probably not what we would expect. If we would think about the nature of this psalm and think about how we would want to conclude this psalm, we would probably not say, this is the way that we would end. This has been a psalm of rejoicing in the law, of praising the law, of praising the God of the law, of expressing love for the law, of expressing resolve to keep the law, of um, even saying many times, I have kept your law, I do keep your law. You get all these very positive expressions. And the, the psalm, I think we may say, is characterized primarily by praise of the glories and beauties and wonders of the law of God. And so, when we come to this last stanza, we would expect to find, I think, a culmination of praise. A stanza that ends on a very high note of praise to God and praise of God's law. And you do find some praise in here. 171, my lips shall utter praise. 175, let my soul live and it shall praise you. But the dominant note here in this stanza is petition. He ends praying to God. Not praising God, not praising the law, but praying to God to help him. In fact, though there are those two verses that express his praise for the law, you can find uh, at least eight petitions in this uh, stanza. Four petitions in verses 169 and 170, and at least four more in verses 173 to 176. So the main idea of this stanza, I think, is found in the last verse. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So what we're going to do uh, is look at this stanza first in, uh, in this way. The first two verses as a group of petitions. Then verses 171 and 172 are primarily praise. So we're going to look at that promise of praise that we see there. And then we're going to look at the group of petitions in verses 173 to 176. He begins, again, as so often in this psalm and in other psalms, with a request to be heard. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. That uh, request to be heard, though it's found frequently throughout the Psalms, is expressed in somewhat unusual terms here. It's not uh, absent from all the other Psalms, but this is not a common way of expressing it. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. It's a, a very unusual expression, I think, in, the, in this way, that the situation you have to imagine here is that psalmist feels himself to be at some distance from God. 
He's separated from God. And he cannot come himself into God's presence. This is a reason for him to be troubled. He wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to present his request directly and in person to God. But he's not able to do it. And so he sends his cry, his petition, to God, as it were, by the hands of a messenger. This is a second best, of course. If he could be there in person, he could be much more importunate than he can be if he sends a messenger to bring his request in his place. His, his request might be very easily overlooked or forgotten or ignored in this way. But he's crying to the Lord, and he cries to the Lord, and he says, let my cry come to you, or better, let my cry draw near before you, O Lord. You see how he emphasizes this idea of separation. Let my cry draw near. I can't draw near, but at least let my cry draw near before you, O Lord. Let my cry come into your presence and hear that cry. He emphasizes that idea too with the word cry that he uses. That's a word that really means loud cry or even shout. Let my loud cry draw near before you, O Lord. So he's crying very urgently, very passionately from his uh, place of distance from God. And what he wants from God, notice that, very interesting again, is give me understanding according to your word. That's the request he has to make. Give me understanding according to your word. The the word is filled with the wisdom of God. It's filled with the understanding that God has revealed. But he says, give that understanding to me. Write that understanding on my heart. Fill my mind and my soul with the understanding that is in your word. Let me embrace it. Let me consume it. Let me be filled with that wisdom which your word has. Give me understanding according to your word. And then in verse 170, he repeats his request to be heard using somewhat different words. Let my supplication come before you. And that's a good translation. The word come before you is a good translation here. Different word than we have in 169. And he uses the word supplication this time. Supplication, of course, is the... uh, kind of request that someone makes when he knows that he uh, has no right to receive what he is asking. It implies humility on the part of the asker. And that's what exactly what we see here in the psalmist. It's a position of humility that he assumes. I have no right to ask this. I have no way of saying that I deserve an answer. I don't even deserve to bring my request to you, much less to have an answer to my request. Nevertheless, let my supplication come before you. And hear his 
request is, again, very specific. This is what I want. Deliver me according to your word. Deliver me from that ignorance which belongs to me. Deliver me from all those obstacles which keep me from keeping your commandment. Deliver me from my evil desires and evil thoughts. Deliver me from my enemies who seek to turn me aside from that path. Deliver me according to that deliverance which you have revealed in your word. So he's praying, and he's praying very urgently here for God's help, for revelation of God to him regarding the word, and for deliverance from all the obstacles to his understanding and to his keeping of that word. It's then in verses 171 and 172 that we find the uh, main elements of praise here in the psalm. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. His first. Notice that he has received the answer to his prayer. He had prayed for understanding, and now he says, You teach me your statutes. You have answered my request for understanding. You are teaching me, even now, your statutes. And therefore, my lips will utter praise. Again, utter is a bit of a weak translation. The um, idea of that word is to pour forth. My lips will pour forth praise. You see that word in Proverbs 15, verse 2. Proverbs 15, verse 2, in a very different context, but it gives you the idea. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. And again, in verse 28 of that chapter, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Well, the psalmist says here, as you teach me your statutes, my mouth pours forth praise towards you. My mouth is like an abundant spring pouring forth your praise. I wanted to learn your statutes, and you have taught and are teaching them to me. And then in verse 172, a little different idea. He looks at the commandments of God, and he considers again their righteousness. He had considered the righteousness of God's commandments in verse 164. He considers it again in verse 172. It's the righteousness of God's commandments that he focuses on then. They're pure and perfect. And he says, My mouth shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. When he says, my mouth shall speak of your word, I think what he means is, I'll talk of it to men. I will praise it not only to you, but I will praise it to men as well. Men need to hear about the righteousness of your commandments, and I will speak of it to them. So that's his praise, and then in the last four verses of the psalm, he makes petition again. And his petitions here are again focused on help and salvation. He's in need. And asking God to give him what he needs. He says, first, let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I think what he means there is that he has chosen the precepts of God. 
because of the work of grace in his heart, he has set his heart on those precepts. And as he considers the implications of his choice for the precepts of God, he says, how am I going to obtain those precepts? How am I going to live by those precepts? And he finds the necessity for prayer. Let your hand become my help. As I walk along the way of your precepts, take me by the hand and guide my feet. When I stumble, let your hand be there to support me. When I fall down, let your hand be there to lift me up again. When I tend to stray, take your hand and lead me back to the way where I should walk. Let your hand become my help because I have made a choice, but it's a choice that I cannot fulfill for myself. I need you to help me out. And the same idea then is in verse 174. Your law is my delight. But how am I going to walk in that law? I long for your salvation, O Lord. It's not an explicit request, of course, but the request is very obvious. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Lord, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from trial and temptation. Save me from my enemies so that this delight which I have in your law may be fulfilled in my walking in that law. And he continues in verse 175. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. Let my soul live. That is, I don't have life. And he's talking not about physical life. We've talked about this many times. He's talking about spiritual life, about knowing God, walking with God, loving God knowing the love of God for him, living with God from day to day, communicating with him as friend with friend. He says, let my soul live in in the context of your own rich and abundant life, and then I will praise you. And let your judgments help me. Again, I think the idea is the same as what David expresses in Psalm 139 at the end. Let the sword of your word Pierce me to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Expose all that is evil in me, so that I may be helped, so that I may put off the ways of death and take on the ways of life. Let your judgments help me also to praise you. Your your judgments will teach me the way of praise, the life of praise, with you and before you. But verse 176 is probably the most striking verse, to me anyway, in the whole psalm. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Why is it so striking? Well, because we've not seen it, really seen anything like it before, have we? This is a psalm of praise for the law. It's a psalm in which the psalmist expresses over and over again his love for the law in which he prays over and over again for God to teach him the law, in which he says more than once, and very emphatically, I keep your law. As in verses 166 and 167, I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. 
That's the kind of thing that characterizes the whole psalm. And then suddenly you get to this last stanza, the last verse of this last stanza, and for the first time, I think, in the psalm, and the only time in the psalm, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. After all those claims about how he keeps the law, about all, after all that stuff about the praise of the law and the delight the law is to him, and the joy he has in the law, and so on, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Why now? Why, for the very last verse in this psalm of praise for the law and of delight in the law, does he say, I've gone astray like a lost sheep? Well, I think the answer to that is that his purpose in this psalm was not to confess sin. This is not a penitential psalm. Psalm is a celebration of the glories of the law, the beauties of the law the blessings even of the law for us. But when it comes to the very end, then he has to say, before God, there's no way that any of this can be of any good to me, that any of this celebration of the law can mean anything unless I first recognize, unless I recognize that I am a sinner I've gone astray like a lost sheep. And I need you, not the law, but I need you to seek me out like a shepherd seeks his lost sheep or his lost coin and bring me back to that way, the way of peace, the way of life. He walks in the wilderness He walks in a place without water. He walks in a dangerous place. A place where darkness threatens. Where enemies are found on every side. And he says, I'm wandering. I've left the fold. I've left the sheep. I have no place, no way to get back unless you come and seek me out. And so that I may understand and rejoice in your law, so that I may keep your law, so that all that I have said about the law may be true and real to me. Seek your servant. I do not forget your commandments. That is, even out here in the wilderness, as I wander, I remember how good your commandments are. I remember what blessings they confer on me. I remember them as the way of life, of peace, and of fellowship with you. Come and bring me back again. We see then our Lord Jesus Christ, forsaken in the wrath of God, longing for peace with the God who was angry with him, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. But remembering the blessed and joyful fellowship that he once had with God, and seeking to return to it, and saying to God, I do not forget your commandments. Seek your servant. Bring me back again. And my lips shall utter praise. In him we also utter this praise. May God bless the proclamation of his word.